0: Welcome back to episode number 220 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're following up on part two on the current status of combustible dust safety in Belgium and with example case studies. We're doing that with Michelle Vanderweyer, Explosion Safety Consultant at ISMA based out of Antwerp, Belgium. So last week in the podcast, we covered Michelle's experience in the area how combustible dust safety is approached in terms of regulations and engineering guidelines for combustible dust in his region of the world he gave me the three steps as he sees it for applying the ATEX legislation which includes the identification and prevention of explosive atmospheres the prevention of ignition sources and the mitigation of the consequence of explosion that did happen then we're just about to jump into some examples of these different aspects of combustible safety from his experience as well. So we're going to jump right back into the episode today, Listening, going through these examples in terms of Michelle's experience. Hope you enjoy the podcast episode. and appreciate you listening. Um, let's get into some examples here. So we have the three areas. I think the three examples roughly cover the three areas. But the three areas are explosive atmospheres, ignition sources, and mitigation of consequences. Let's start with the explosive atmospheres. Do you have any kind of examples uh, from your, your wealth and knowledge in this area that you want to walk through?
1: Absolutely. There are some difficulties. Huh? The first difficulty, as I've said, is the difference between the different countries because the zoning and the identification of the explosive atmospheres is for the well-being of workers. So every country can use its own guidelines, standards. There is a European standard that describes how to do it. But it's quite complex and it's not always easily applicable because you need to have a lot of input data that you don't always have. So most European countries have their own methods, so to say. Uh, For the Netherlands, by example, it's the NPR. In Germany, they have TRGS standards and so on and so on. Specifically in Belgium, we don't have such a national guideline or standard. But where we have another... A way of checking if you did your homework correctly, that is that your zoning exercise must be approved by an accredited inspection and certification organization. So like a, a SOT or OCB or, or, or these kind of companies. If you define a zoning, you must motivate it correctly. You must really show that it's realistic and that it's not what you like, but it must be correct. It's actually a good test that you did your your homework correctly. In the Netherlands, this is not required to have this checked by an independent organization, but your zoning can be challenged by a labor inspectorate and so on. But that makes it quite challenging sometimes. Overall, zoning has become common practice in, in in all countries. And most companies do have their things in order, especially in Belgium and the Netherlands. The zoning exercise is a thing that is actually done correctly and because it saves the company so much money. To give an example, if you take your zones too large or the zone class too high, you should also adapt your equipment that is put in the zone. And that costs a lot of money, atex equipment. So people try to really make that exercise thoroughly.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a really great point. Well, two, two really great points there. One, it's interesting having the zoning document viewed by an independent and certified organization. Is that done in other, I, I think you mentioned a, like Netherlands, that's not required. Um, is that very common in other European countries? I, it's, it's an interesting way to think about it on my end. Um, or is that something that's unique to Belgium?
1: I cannot answer that. I only know for, for Belgium that they must do it. And I haven't heard of any other countries where it must be checked by an inspection certification organization.
0: I've thought of that for in North America. And again, Dust their Analysis, there's this whole... Discussion around qualified person and having somebody that's qualified to be able to do your DHA, and that's that's one route that we're trying to tackle as a community to figure out how to address that. But the other side is you could just actually submit the DHA to the same thing, an independent certified organization to review it, not necessarily for the like the implementation details, like uh, explosion venting versus suppression on a dust collection system, uh, but more just like the framework that all the elements are there that it has a list of what was excluded on the site. You know, they could check the credential, like and almost give like a grading system. You said do your homework. It's like a, it's a good example, right? It's like, okay, this D- dust has analysis meets all of the steps recommended in say NFPA 652 or it meets some of the steps and left some of the steps out here they are, or it, you know, it, it, or it's just a regurgitation of, of 652 or, or 61 or some other standard with a new front page staple to it and kind of give them a grading so that the consumer, the company knows, you know, what they received. I don't even know if I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I've had that discussion with, with a number of folks about should we just really be certifying the DHAs at the end of the day against some rubric, we'll call it, or some sort of matrix to test. And I've never had a case study of somebody doing that otherwise, but it sounds like this is a good example of that where there is an independent certified organization looking at these zoning documents. So it'd be something for me to look into. That was point number one. The point number two is a really interesting thing where you're saying companies pay attention to their zoning diagrams that exercise in Belgium because it's tied to real dollars. Um, And the way it's tied to real dollars is if you are able to eliminate, moderate, and minimize your your zones, then uh, it's cheaper because you can buy different equipment that can go inside those zones. So it sort of makes people want to do it, <laughs> um, and then you may have more, more compliance, I guess, for lack of a better word, because it's tied to an extra dollar figure. That's that's interesting as well. Um, anything else on this explosive atmospheres example that we're talking through? Should we move on to ignition sources?
1: Yeah, another argument that is quite important for companies in in Belgium. They have these uh, periodical electrical checks also from independent organization they come to inspect your electrical installation the check of the zoning and the equipment that is in the zoning is also done during this electrical inspection the is there's one thing that a company does not want is remarks on their electrical installation because insurance companies don't like this And that costs a lot of money also. So that's another incentive to have your things in order and also to maintain your zoning. Best example is housekeeping. You can have your zoning drafted when you've cleaned everything perfectly and the inspector comes and you say, okay, I agree, it's clean here. But if you don't keep that good housekeeping up and the next electrical inspection comes along, yeah, you do have an issue there because he says, hey, you have dust on non-Atex equipment. Explain this, where are your zoning plans? And they are not in order. So all the more motivation for companies to keep this zoning exercise up and to, to do the the things that must be done there in that uh, regard.
0: Okay, I think that's some really good background on explosive atmospheres. What do we have on preventing ignition sources? Is that as well covered as, as the explosive atmospheres, in your opinion?
1: That is something where things often go wrong, and that should not come to a surprise since The ignition source is is what, what causes the explosion. This analysis is most often done per installation part. You look at one specific part of the installation, and you check, and is there the possibility of an ignition source or not? But if you do that, interaction between different installation parts is missed. To give you an example, again, the dust filter, The dust filter on its own only produces, let's say, electrostatic discharges. There's nothing that moves fast in a filter. There's no heating elements in standard dust filters. So actually, a dust filter is quite safe on its own. You foresee antistatic uh, filter sleeves and you're good to go. But if this filter extracts dust from somewhere where there's possible smoldering particles or uh, fast uh, rotating equipment, yeah, then you could have an issue because this hot particle enters the filter. It just sits on the filter sleeve where it keeps smoldering due to the high airflow like you have in your barbecue. If you want to let your barbecue you just add a high airflow and it keeps burning brighter and brighter. And the next thing you should have is the explosive dust cloud, which you have every time you clean your filter. If you pass a dust filter, you hear it very often. That does a loud bang. It's because they have frequent cleaning the, with this uh, compressed air. Uh, very easily have the combination of an ignition source and and, uh, and a dust cloud. If you only look at a filter, this is not evaluated correctly. The evaluation of the ignition sources itself is an issue uh, for an untrained or unexperienced person. By example, the electrostatic phenomena are most often not sufficiently uh, understood. If you don't understand them completely, you cannot evaluate them correctly. To give you a specific example, in the food industry, there's a tendency to coat the silos internally with non-conductive coatings. The work of Martin Glor, one of the most important persons regarding electrostatic phenomena and the resulting European standards regarding electrostatics, they specifically warn you not to do that since they can lead to propagating brush discharges, which are incredibly dangerous and incredibly powerful. Now they say, well, propagating brush discharge, it needs high airflow and high product flow. Um, but and, and in, in a silo where they coat the, the inside, you don't have this high speed along the silo wall. So you could say, well, is this such an issue in a silo? The problem is that if you transport product into a silo, by example, pneumatically, the product enters charged in the silo. And when it is deposited in the silo, there's a charge compression in the bulk material. All the charges are in the bulk material and they generate a high electric field. This high electric field is also responsible for cone discharges. But before cone discharges are formed, corona and brush discharges occur at the charge bulk. They are not dangerous for dust, but the corresponding countercharges are directly directed along the electric field lines to the earthed silo outer wall, and they will form a high charge density on this coating that they have applied. And that may lead ultimately to a propagating brush discharge. For the same reason, you must, uh, the big bags, uh, you must use this, the correct type of FIBCs, Flexible Intermediate Bulk Containers or Big Bags. You should use a type B if you are using a flammable bulk material. And this type B must have a breakdown voltage lower than four kilovolts just to avoid these propagating brush discharges and the same applies to the coatings of this in the inner coatings of a silo. We did a lot of tests on these coatings for uh, since there were some companies that were concerned about it. these, com- these coatings are mostly built from epoxy and these breakdown voltages, should be below 4 kilovolts, but they're often multiples. Like I've had samples to 20 to 30 kilovolts that did not even have a breakdown then. So it's probably higher than that. So applying such a coating is actually deliberately putting another ignition source inside of your silo. And you should take that into account in your risk analysis.
0: Yeah, and I think there's... There's two kind of key items that you mentioned about this area of ignition sources from these two examples. So the, the dust collector one you need to be thinking about ignition sources generated in the system, and also ignition sources that are transported into the system. Actually, that turns out to be the same thing. In the second point, I'll say as well. So if you look at um, and it's not just a dust collector or dust filter uh, that we're talking about this. Every process piece of equipment you need to ask that question: Can a ignition source be generated in here? If it's a heater, then you know you're you're generating and you're adding energy in that system. If it's got a motor, if it's got exposed electrical, you know, hot surfaces, all these things can lead to generating ignition source in that piece of equipment. Uh, but then also, would it be, you know, common, uncommon, impossible, or possible that ignition source gets transported into this from um, from downstream, or upstream equipment? And those questions need to be answered as well because then you know, either the the dust doesn't care where the ignition source came from. Once it gets there, then it can smolder, it can ignite as a cloud and cause a deflagration and explosion. That's point number one. The point number two is really getting a hold on, on different type of ignition sources. And you talked a lot about electrostatics. I don't know why they coat the silo probably for food safety. So doing that, though, may have an unintended consequence on the generation of ignition sources. Um, and in this case, we're talking about that coating increasing the chance of a higher electrical discharge and charge buildup that may be higher than you would expect. And in that case, essentially higher than the minimum ignition energy of that dust cloud and causing a hazard um, when it wasn't evaluated. So really interesting points there. What do we have on, uh, on consequences of explosions? Any examples from your work that you've seen in, in this area of things gone wrong?
1: You should mitigate the consequences of an explosion if you cannot reduce the possibility of an ignition source sufficiently. Problem is, a lot of companies are um, pretty creative, as so sort to of say. Let's take fan panels, by example. Everyone that has the slightest slightest knowledge of explosion effects knows that if you have an explosion, a fire jet comes out tens of meters long uh, out of the vent panel. And that seems so logic to us that uh, we don't even think about it anymore. But if we visit companies, we still find vent panels that give out in areas where personnel is present. And even inside of buildings, in dusty, dirty buildings, if you have an explosion that is vented into a dusty building, you actually make it worse probably. Also, the pressure effects of such venting is not in, taken into account or are heavily uh, underestimated. A colleague of mine went to a, to a country in East Europe uh, recently and he witnessed two very large filters. They were protected by vent panels, but the vent panels from the two filters gave out directly onto each other. So which means if one filter Uh, Blows up, uh, there's an explosion. The explosion is vented directly onto the vent panel of the other filter, which most likely will result in an explosion in the second filter. Another very specific example of a mistake uh, a company made is that they didn't evaluate the consequences of uh, protection measures. What did they do? They had a dust filter for metal dust It was protected by vent panels. It uh, was well known that hot particles came from the process. It was liquid metal that was atomized, and they know they had some, some glowing particles produced every once in a while. So what they did, they installed spark detection, which is a common measure that they use, everywhere in the industry, but it's metal dust and you cannot apply water extinguishing for hot metal dust, especially not this metal because it will produce hydrogen gas, which makes everything worse. What they did, they the spark detection triggered a valve before the filter and it closed. So the hot particle could not enter the filter. So we're safe because in the filter, you have dust clouds. In the de-dusting line, it's not really realistic to assume that you will ever get to the LEL, the lower explosion limit. So an explosion would not seem possible. However, this de-dusting line was a large vertical piping with some dust layers also on the side. And what happened was by closing the valve at the filter, the driving force of the the de-dusting system was taken away. You stop your airflow. As a consequence, all the dust stops flowing and falls down in this vertical tube towards the filter. And what is at the bottom of the vertical tube It was this ignition sources that was detected by the spark detection. So what happened in the de-dusting line, there was a a dust explosion. It could not go to the filter because it was closed, but it, it fired back towards the extraction points where operators could have been present. Luckily, at that specific moment, no operator was present, but the damage there was really significant. so on the first thought it, it seemed logical huh? you eliminate the ignition source from entering the only place where you could prov- could have an explosive mixture, but it's all in the details
0: yeah it's a it's a really good exercise in. Like a what if assessment, right? <laughs> so you did your first layer, you did your first <laughs> basis of safety, your first, um, your first thought of how to fix the the problem. But then what what if? Okay, what if it works? <laughs> What's going to happen then if it's a vertical pipe that uh, line now suction is closed off? And I think we've seen a I can't can't quote them, but I think we've seen a couple of cases of this where um, all that material then falls back down through that line, and that then can lead to a. a an explosion in that line, even though the safety system is closed off. I'm thinking oh, I can't, uh, I don't have the examples in mind, but I feel like I've talked about this before on the podcast or maybe in some of the webinars we've run where we've seen a, a case study where that's happened. Um, but it's really thinking about, you know, what's the protection methods that you use? What's going to be the effect of them? And I probably, I think I talked about this one uh, not too long ago on the podcast, so if are familiar to the listeners, I, I remember this, this old video at a testing site of a a dust collector, and they're doing some venting tests. It wasn't sturdy enough; like it wasn't structurally reinforced enough at the base of the dust collector, where the thrust from the vent of the explosion actually tipped the dust collector right over. <laughs> so, you know, you gotta you gotta think about these things when you do that, because you wouldn't want that to happen on site, right? That thing's heavy, <laughs> and uh, it's gonna cause damage. And if it lands on somebody, it's certainly not going to be good. Um, so you got to think about these things. Same thing with isolation systems, making sure that they're structurally sound around where the isolation system is installed. Use suppression bottles, same sort of thing. And it really takes an experienced provider like yourself or like others in the industry that do this work to um, understand those second and third order consequences that might happen, rather than just taking somebody from the company that thinks they have a solution and and starting to get some sheet metal and put something together to, to work at the end of the day. Um, really great examples, Michelle. Anything else you want to close out on this podcast? I think we're, we're getting uh, towards the, the end of our time for today.
1: One of the main issues that uh, we encounter and see as an issue in the future is the energy transitions towards renewable resources. There are several incidents that we investigated regarding explosions from biomass dusts. And the key component there is, all, is mostly wood pellets. Wood pellets are being introduced in a lot of companies in large scales. And uh, there are phenomena like smoldering, auto-ignition, and these things that are not sufficiently understood by these companies. And also, how to react when smoldering does occur. Uh, If you have this old ignition or a smoldering fire, what should you do with it? And that is something that is really not sufficiently understood by a lot of companies. To give you an example, in 2019, in Belgium, there was a silo. They had a fire. It was a silo with wood waste or waste wood. And uh, the fire department itself, they covered the product with a foam layer and they searched for hotspots and they declared that the fire was extinguished. Even uh, the fire department said, fire is out. And the next day, a cleaning firm started emptying the silo from the bottom, totally unprepared. And they also assumed that the fire was extinguished. During the emptying, a dust cloud must have formed. And in combination with Carbon monoxide, since it was a smoldering fire, you have this hybrid explosion from the dust from the woods together with the carbon monoxide and the smoldering particle that was still present, the smoldering fire. And one person lost his life. Three others were severely injured. Which leads me to say that it's almost impossible to extinguish a smoldering fire inside of a silo. We are aware of a silo that is containing molds in the harbor of Antwerp, and it has been burning for over a year. They added daily, on a daily basis, hundreds of kilograms of solid carbon dioxide, and even that did not put out the fire. So we see a lot of recommendations, on, uh, like insert nitrogen or just insert foam, and it will put out the smoldering fire. and. It's not guaranteed, and um, it's actually a big issue what you should do with it. That's one thing. Since the transition is, is is more and more to these biofuels, this is going to get a lot, a lot worse. Other challenges that we will face is uh, in the field of gas explosions, like, say, batteries, hydrog- hydrogen-based systems. The standards will all must be rewritten taking into account hydrogen explosions to really assess that risk and to mitigate the uh, consequences of a hydrogen explosion. So we are really thrilled to see that there's a lot of research done at this moment, also regarding hybrid mixtures. There's a lot of research done in this matter, and maybe this will soon be translated into new standards where we also participate. So it's actually, there's a lot of new things coming and we're lo- really looking forward to it. But a lot of new problems that will start occurring on larger scales.
0: Yeah, and that was a, a topic that was discussed at ISHMI quite a bit. There's a some really good groups in Germany at BAM and other organizations there that are looking at hybrid mixtures, coming up with a, a new standard for testing of hybrid mixtures of flammable dust. Flammable gases and combustible dust, um, and you actually left. I'm just making a note now to reach out to reach out to the author there and see if we can get them on the podcast. Talk about those those standards and the development there. Um, really great points on smoldering combustion. Extremely hard to put out. While you were talking, I was just looking through my LinkedIn messages because I have a message from a few weeks ago of an individual saying that same thing. That uh, I can't find it. Basically it was yeah, I, I work at a site, I think it's down in South America. We have smoldering in the silo and I don't can't figure out what to do with it. <laughs> should I should I remove it? And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like this okay, slow down. We need to move slow. And you know, we I it's I can't solve it over LinkedIn for them, but I connect them with some local people that are that are in the area that can come out and, and um but I, I did send some videos <laughs> of of people, um, inappropriately—I uh, say inappropriate—they had no ill will, but uh, removing smoldering from silos that have led to explosions. So I can't give specific guidance on here. I've heard Dr. Chris Bloor give some good guidance, um, like general stuff, like you know, move really slow. <laughs> you don't want to—you don't want to uh, kick up a dust cloud. But really, at that time, that's probably a really important time to stop, do a risk assessment, and come up with a, a structured way. To address that, to make sure that we have protect per, correct fire protection equipment on, um, that we're thinking about things like what happens if there's a deflagration in the headspace, uh, or big chunks of concrete going to fall down? Because <laughs> um, we don't want to have workers in the area that are cleaning that stuff. Uh, deflagrations at the bottom of the silo. There's just a lot of things to come into it. Um, so that's where you need to call Michelle, <laughs> or I, you can send me a, a message on LinkedIn too. That's fine. Or Chris at uh, I can't solve it via email or LinkedIn, but chances are through Dust Data Professionals, we have somebody that's within an hour or two of you or closer that can uh, can get out there and, and help you with that risk assessment and make sure you're moving it safely. So thank you, Michelle. We did go over on time on this one. I appreciate your, you know, your expertise in this area, but we'll close off the recording today just saying thank you for coming on. Thank you for the work that you're doing with ISMA. I appreciate what you're doing.
1: This has been a pleasure. And also from our part, thank you for your great work at Dustex Research. It really gives us the ammunition to prove that there is a risk and to convince customers, hey guys, really, you should do something about it because it could happen to
0: you. I couldn't agree more. And I think we'll close off today's episode. And I'll just say, I, 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 I have a feeling you're, you've got a, you got an act for this, Michelle. So I don't think this will be your last podcast interview. I will have you back on the future as well.
1: Thanks. Looking
0: forward to it. All right. Thank you, sir. We'll talk soon. So you didn't even listen to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Michelle van der Weyer, Explosion Safety Consultant with ISMA. In the last two episodes of the podcast, because we ended up breaking it over two episodes because it took a, a little bit longer, we've been talking around combustible dust safety in Belgium, and a number of example case studies. And I'll go through the summary of both episodes, but we covered the breakdown of of combustible dust in Europe. ATEX-114, which is the economic directive. This goes to manufacturers of explosion protection equipment. ATEX-153, this is the social directive, covers um, workers' safety and protection. Uh, Michelle did a really great job breaking down how this applies, is actually put into practice things like the economic directive, the manufacturers being uh, required to be adopted throughout the EU uh, wholly and completely so that we have um, some effect on trade where you have similar equipment in similar regions. But that ATEX 153, the social directive, is adopted differently by countries, differently by municipalities, Um, might be adopted wholly with additions, might be adopted in modifications of that specific directive. Um, And then that leads to a bunch of interesting things that happen in terms of how combustible safety is tackled in different parts of the European Union. ATEX153, Michelle broke it down in a really simple way. Uh, explosive atmospheres, we want to prevent them. Competent ignition sources, we want to prevent them. And when you can't prevent those two things, then you look at mitigation of, of the consequences. We talked about things like how inherently safer design might fit into this. So for explosive atmospheres, we want to eliminate any of the you know, high-risk atmospheres. we try to moderate them. So can we move them from a zone 20 to, say, a zone 22? Um, and can we minimize them? So if they're, I don't know, 10 meters wide, it's kind of an arbitrary number, but can we make them five meters or two meters? And that's a really nice way to start to make things safer without getting into your engineering controls. Uh, we talked a lot about ignition sources as well, and then we talked about some different aspects of mitigating combustible dust. Uh, we walked through a number of examples We talked about challenges within the regulatory framework, explosion protection documents, even dust hazard analysis documents, how that needs to be a living document, change over time, not to be done once and then left on the shelf. We talked about specific examples around zoning. There's some interesting things came up throughout both of these episodes around zoning. So one in Belgium, it's required that the zoning is reviewed by an independent um, certified organization, which is a really interesting approach. I'm going to think a bit more about what that you know, how that could be applied elsewhere around the world with combustible dust. Um, how zoning is tied to you know bottom line or top line revenue rather for companies in that if they have a um, if they take the effort to improve their their site and have better zoning characteristics, it has a direct economic benefit where they can have different types of equipment that they may not be able to have if the whole site was was um, zone worst case condition. So there's two interesting aspects that came out of that. We talked about ignition sources, both looking at what's generated in that node, in that piece of processing equipment, and also what can be transported into that um, control volume, for lack of a a better way to describe it, into that piece of equipment. Understanding the effects of changes that you're making. So if you look at things like silo coatings, FIBC configurations and setups, these things are important to evaluate on if you have a competent ignition source that is possible to happen at your process or in your process. And we talked about consequence... So we talked about a number of different case studies here, things like know, slam shut valves that protect ignition source from getting into a piece of equipment, then also stops that line from blowing. And if it's a vertical line, you have all that dust rain down, and then you, you can have your ignition source and your hazardous area, um, your explosive atmosphere rather in the same place, and that can lead to a deflagration. Uh, Michelle mentioned a couple of examples, and we actually have a couple of examples where that similar thing has happened. And then we closed off some other examples around biomass, tackling smoldering combustion, um, challenges there, challenges with metal dust and others. So I do want to thank again for for the last time today, Michelle, for coming on the podcast. Um, again, he's an exposure safety consultant with ISMA, ISMA, based out of Antwerp, Belgium. We'll have a link to their website and a way to contact Michelle in the show notes at com slash 220 for this episode of the podcast. So I hope everyone has a safe and productive week ahead. I want to say I appreciate you listening to the podcast and I really appreciate everything you do in the handling like a muscle dust, making it safer with the work that you do every day.